This New America NYC event took place on September 30th, 2015, and followed a screening of the film Terror, a social cinema screening with the Brennan Center for Justice, and features Beth Dembitzer, David Felix Sutcliffe, Faisal Hashmi, Ali Karim, and Mike German. Hi, everyone. My name is Mike German. I'm a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. Thanks for coming tonight. And how about another round of applause for the film? David Felix Sutcliffe, one of the, the co-directors uh, and producers of this. Uh, why don't we go ahead and, and, and ask first, uh, tell us about how you met Saeed and how the film got started. Sure. Uh, also, okay. uh, Ali Kareem. Some of you may recognize from the film. And Faisal Hashmi. Thank you. Faisal Hashmi. Thank you guys for coming. Uh, so the film began uh, in 2005, actually 2003, Lyric, my co-director, first moved into a brownstone in Harlem, and Syed was her downstairs neighbor. And she had no idea that he was an informant, and she just happened to strike up a kind of a friendship with him. And at the time, she was a student at Columbia, and she was particularly interested in his experiences in the Black Panther Party, and would spend a lot of time talking to him about that, uh, as well as current events. And then one day, uh, May 28th, 2005, she came back to the Brownstone, and he had disappeared. His entire apartment was empty, uh, and they had plans to hang out on a Saturday, and she was pretty shocked that you know he had just kind of up and left, uh, leaving no trace of him, uh, leaving no trace. And she got a call from him, I think, shortly thereafter, in which she said it sounded as if there was a gun to his head. And he said, if there's anybody, if anybody comes looking for me, don't tell them where I am. Don't tell them anything. Uh, and she said, well, I, I don't know anything. What, what's going on? And he said, I can't tell you right now, but you know, I'll give you a call in a few months and tell you where I am and I'll invite you down to meet me. So a few months later, he called her. He invited her to, to visit him where he was staying down south, uh, at which point he confessed to her that he had been working as an FBI informant and that the apartment in which they had spent time together talking in was actually an FBI safe house where some of the investigation of Tariq Shah took place. It was wired with audio and video surveillance, uh, at which point Lyric realized, you know, or asked him, like, was, was I, were you ever recording when I was in there? Like, there does the FBI now have tapes of me discussing? I, I don't, she said, I don't know what I was discussing. And he's like, oh, no, 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 of course not. But she didn't exactly feel comforted. Uh, but as you know, as a journalism student, she said, this is an amazing source, amazing story, but I don't feel prepared to really capitalize on it just yet, nor do I really fully understand uh, this issue. Um, so they parted ways, but she would stay in touch with him and call him up you know, every few months and say, how are you, where are you? Uh, and right at that time, Lyric and I met at an after-school arts program in Harlem, where it was our first job teaching out of school. And at that program, I actually met the subject of my first film, a young woman named Adama Ba, a 16-year-old Muslim girl from Guinea, West Africa who was arrested by the FBI when she was 16 and accused of being a potential suicide bomber. And through the, you know, I ended up making a film about her. And through the course of that film, I started to learn more and more about the counterterrorism landscape and the ways that informants were being used in these cases and thought that would be an incredible film, you know, really important and dramatically, psychologically, really fascinating portrait of the kinds of people who do this work. And I happened to mention that idea to Lyric offhandedly saying, you know, imagine if you can make a movie about an informant, too bad you can never find one to step in front of a camera. She said, funny you should say that, I, I happen to know one. And we called him up, and she knew that he wanted to tell his story, because uh, he had first asked her to write a book about him, and said, would you consider doing a film instead? 
He said, you know, sure. Uh, and funny you should call because I'm actually about to start an investigation right now. And so we were able to get in right from, right from the beginning. And it was interesting because I met David uh, when he was doing the film with Adama, uh, which sort of shows, because that was a case that first came to public light in 2004, that this is something that's been going on for quite a while. And, and that's one thing that we want to get into because, of course, you go back a long way and, and the issue goes back a long way. I mean, these aren't new tactics. These are tactics that the government has used in the past going after what it deems radicals and people that are outside the mainstream to justify its uh, national security programs. What can you tell us about your experience, both, both with the, actually, Saeed, but also with other law enforcement attention to your activities? Um, um, your religious activities, I right, should exactly, say. Exactly. Yeah, well, um, uh, the, the masjid that I attend is Masjid Taqwa. It's located in, in Bedford-Stuyvesant you know, on um, uh, Bedford Avenue and Fulton Street. The masjid was established in, in uh, 1981, and um, I attended that masjid in 82. Um, Said sort of came through around, around 84, and um, that's the time that we had decided that we would uh, fight the drugs in our neighborhood, you know, the criminal activities that were going on. And um, he, he basically was part of that. And uh, we met him, you know, in, in the midst of that. You know, he became very much familiar with the community and, and, and pretty much he became very close to the community to the extent that, you know, we have a sort of security apparatus that we have at the masjid and he became part of that security uh, a makeup and organization. Um, at that time, you know, we were working hand in hand with the police department and so forth, you know, to get rid of the uh, community of drugs. So we had really no problems at, the, at that moment. Uh, the situation arise when the first World Trade Center bombing happened. And then things started to change in terms of, you know, the mustard being targeted. Saeed he's, you know, like the situation itself is very complicated at this moment. Now it has, as things escalated, you know, and as things evolved to a point where, you know, now, you know, Muslims are, no matter what the situation is, there's a doubt, there's a, there's a suspicion about Muslims. It's almost, it's almost, it falls under the guise that, you know, like the presumptions of guilt. And Saeed was very, it was a person that, you know, he was, he's very impressionable, as you see. And um, what happened with him, we, we as a community began to understand that he was involved in some nefarious activities. Like, like he said, he was impersonating officers. You know, then he got involved in a in a, um, subway robbery and so forth. So we we sort of had had our apprehension at that point, and but we we had no idea that he was involved in with the you know feds at that moment. You know, and um, we go way back in that sense. So, but the point is, is that myself being being the head of security at the moment, you know, I sort of had my doubts about him. And, um, and one thing, you, you, if you realize that Sa uh, Saeed is a very, you know, in itself, you know, he himself is a contradiction. He's a, it's a contra he's a contradiction as a Muslim and as a human being. Because in one sense, he's talking about how, you know, he's trying to help the government, he's trying to help America, but in this other sense is that how did he get involved? The very fact that he got involved because he was trying to get out of the situation when he got arrested, you know, and that's maybe you know that's the main thing. 
And I find it, you know, it's, it's easy to, to hold Zaid responsible for the decisions he makes and the things that he does. But I think the one true thing as a former FBI agent that I heard him say in that film is that, you know, it's the government. This is your government that is initiating these tactics. And it, it preys on uh, not just people in the community who, who are weak and, and uh, need resources, but actually the people who are already trapped in the system. And, and uh, you know, as much as we can and should hold Saeed responsible for the decisions he made, uh, this is a government program. And I think one of the things, uh, Faisal, if you can comment on this, and, and maybe tell your brother's story so, so that we can get an idea that this is just one tactic targeting these communities. Sure. Um, just to uh, piggyback off a point you said, uh, when I looked at Khalifa, I said there's something wrong with the way that he's posting these type of things. These, this is not a smart thing for the Muslim community to do, period, right? Uh, to espouse these views. As a Muslim in the community, I think Ali might share the same sentiment, but you don't go around espousing these type of beliefs. It's careless, it's reckless. And if, you know, to really care about your family is not to do these things. I have a problem with that, right? When, when you're acting like that, you know, on a platform like the web and with Facebook and these advents, because you have a platform doesn't necessarily mean you have to go out and just say all these things. With that said, what happened to him was absolutely wrong because he made it to say, I said all these crazy things, but I don't plan on taking any action. These are just beliefs I have, and I just want the government to leave me alone. The government didn't leave him alone, and he ended up in the situation that he's in. With that said, uh, I come from a very personal point of view on, on, the, on these type of stories. Uh, about nine years ago, my brother was arrested in a, a federal terrorism case uh, in England. He was a student at Brooklyn College. Uh, he did his undergrad at Brooklyn College studying po political science. And in 03, he left uh, to do his master's in uh, London Metropolitan University. Uh, so we've talked a lot about the confidential informant paradigm. There's another paradigm called the cooperating witness, which is somebody that does something really bad and then points his finger at the rest of the world. So uh, in 2004, while my brother was in England uh, studying for his master's, a friend of his, an acquaintance of his that he knew from New York uh, named Junaid Babar came and stayed with him for a week. He stayed, he imposed himself on my brother for a week and he stayed in my, as a guest of my brother in his accommodations over there. In 2004, this is about January 2004, this person stayed and then left. He went to Pakistan. In April 2004, Right? This person came back to America. He had left America around 2001. He came back to America and where he was promptly arrested. Uh, as, and he, in 2004, of June, uh, April 2004, he admitted he was part of every single plot under the sun. A big plot in London, a big plot in uh, uh, Canada. He was, he was part of everything. Uh, it's called the fertilizer bombing case in London. And he said, yes, you know, we were doing this, these type of things. Uh, my brother didn't get arrested in 2004. He did not get arrested. He was not questioned by the government, <laughs> the American government, and he continued to do his master's. Uh, he did his master's, uh, it took him another couple of years, and in June 2006, my brother is arrested at Heathrow Airport, and he's arrested on uh, charges from America. Uh, and he's sent to Belmarsh Prison, where he stayed a year. And uh, the charges we learn are uh, material support to terrorism, which is uh, the common uh, charge that you get. 
And he had four counts of material support terrorism that were 20 years, 20 years, 15 years, 15 years. It all amounted to this person stayed with you in 2004, and he had ponchos and socks that he gave to the Al-Qaeda when he went to Pakistan. Not that he had ponchos and socks, not that he bought ponchos and socks, the person that stayed with you, you know, the cooperating witness in 2004. This is a 70-year indictment against my brother for ponchos and socks and somebody else's luggage. My brother stayed in Belmarsh prison for a year, and then he was the uh, first person extradited back to America uh, under the British extradition laws in 2007. We learned everything we need to know about the American justice system, and you know, I can respect, I've seen my talk before and all that stuff, but you know, this talks about Saeed's motivations, the FBI, the, the Department of Justice, the US attorneys, and their motivations, and their type of logic in, in these type of things is, is quite vicious and quite evil to our community. It's turned our community upside down. You had a charge against my brother for uh, 70 years for ponchos and socks. Uh, he spent three years in solitary confinement in MCC New York downtown. Three years in solitary confinement. Just to give you an example, uh, Sammy Dibble Gravano spent a month in solitary confinement at MCC 10 South, and he turned on the Gambino crime family. My brother spent three years in solitary, 23-hour day lockdown. He was monitored by video while he was in his own <laughs> lockdown. He wasn't allowed to talk outside from cell to cell, and we saw you know, severe damage. On top of that, the US Attorney of America, the first one with Casey, and then I think uh, the other three, up to Eric Holder, signed special administrative measures that were signed on uh, Lynn Stewart's case. I kid you not, the case still against my brother to this day was ponchos and socks that this person, the cooperating witness, said he delivered. That was it. But they treated my brother in, in the worst possible manner. And, you know, it, this is four years into it. Uh, the day before his trial, unbeknownst to us, because we weren't allowed to visit our brother, because the Bureau of Prisons, you know, plays a role in the mental breakdown of, some, of a person before their trial, we weren't allowed to visit him. Unbeknownst to us, our, our, our lawyer was Rico. So he, he knows, Rico was in the film. Uh, uh, he, unbeknownst to us, he, go, my bro, he goes, you know, my, your brother agreed for a plea bargain for 15 years. You know, we were prepped for a trial. We didn't know that this was happening. And, you know, it was 15 years or 70 years. That's what he was facing. And it's not the first case like that. I can cite many cases like that. But what it represents, and you know, post his trial, he was sent to super maximum security where the Unabomber is, and he spent three years in Colorado in super maximum security. So we, he had spent six years in solitary confinement on a case about ponchos and socks. It wasn't really about ponchos and socks. My brother was an activist, right? And he, he was, his, his activism was on trial. Um, that's what they said the, the prosecution was going to use. The speeches he made in college, uh, you know, his, his reeling against American foreign policy, all that kind of stuff was what they were going to use at his trial. So the freedom of speech is limited. You know, a certain community doesn't have it. Uh, his lawyers had to get CIA clearance. He couldn't see the evidence. So due process is limited. So the American justice system, as you know it, exists, you know, in a, in a very uh, segmented way. There's a whole community out there that's, that's suffering because, you know, pre-trial, he's under the presumption of innocence, but there isn't a presumption of innocence. You know, there is all these tactics that the government is employing to really break down the human spirit. 
My brother slated to be released in about another four years. And, uh, you know, again, if you look up his case, you can read uh, an American University Law Review called Preferring Order to Justice by Professor Theo Harris and Laura Rovner. You can find out the details. You're not going to get anything different than what I just told you. And your brother's name is Syed. His name is Fahad Hashmi. Right. Everybody in my family's name is Syed. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, so you might have been hearing a lot this week about this uh, concept of countering violent extremism. And this is part of, of the trick. And it's not, again, a new trick. In, in the, <clears throat> the first radicalization hearing at Congress was in 1917, uh, the Overman Committee. And what they were looking at was anarchist bombing, of course, is, uh, bombings at the end of World War II. And what the hearing did was it changed the focus from people who are actually committing violent or threats to the safety of the United States to people who were talking about the same things as the people who were doing violence. And at the time, that, that included labor activists and civil rights activists, uh, including the ACLU, where I used to work. Um, and then, of course, in the 1950s and 60s, the COINTELPRO program. And now we have it again, where, where we're not focusing on actual criminals. There are plenty of actual criminals out there. Instead, we're focusing on people we think fit a profile. And that's what this community has said. And that's why they target people who are saying things, political activists like your brother, and even Khalifa. And I, I agree, that was not a wise thing to do, but in the United States, you should be able to express your opinion, however odious it is to others. I mean, every segment of the Muslim community is touched. The Uzbek community, African-American community, convert community, you know, Bangladeshi community. You will find a case littered from literally New York, Hawaii, Alaska, where, you know, Trevor Harris's book, the Terror Factory talks about that in detail. And of course, we know that, that the NYPD was involved in massive surveillance of the Muslim community here in New York. How did that affect you, you and your community? Well, you know, when, we got, when we got wind of the, uh, that the uh, NYPD was spying on, on the Muslim community, we filed a class action suit against them in New York, and they, and they filed one in New Jersey. Uh, it did affect us because they had already set up a certain scenario in terms of, you know, not stumbling on a terrorist group, but creating, or at least creating one in the minds of the people. And they had what they call the crawlers, and, and, this, and crawlers are people who, who like stay in the masjid and just listen to people's conversation. And then they had others who went out and looked for people who might you know, fit a, pro, a certain profile and tried to solicit you know, certain conversation. So it's not like, it's, it's not like um, they find out that you know, they're doing like a criminal investigation where they find out that there's some criminal activities going inside. They come in to see how they can use use certain information, like you said, freedom of speech. You know how conversations and so forth. So that conversation has become criminalized. You know, and freedom of speech has become criminalized. And the, and the and the whole thing is when you look at situations now, because it's complicated, like I said, is that a Muslim walks in this society, and People view why based based on misinformation, misinformation coming from the government, from the media. The media is, is amplifies, you know, all this misinformation and misconstrued a lot of uh, Muslim activities, and you, you never you never uh, distinguish between what is a true Muslim. Now, people people say that oh, this is a devout Muslim when they when they when they speak about terrorist activities. That's not a devout Muslim. 
you know, a devout Muslim wouldn't even participate in such activities, you see. But you never get a chance to narrate that type of situation because people are, are indoctrinated to think that, you know, all Muslims are the same. I mean, remember, I, rem uh, I remember I had a conversation with an individual. We, we, we had an activity in, at the Capitol. It was called um, Juma at the Capitol, meaning Friday prayer. Everybody came uh, from all over the country. You know, to make Friday prayer at the capital, uh, capital steps, and I, you know, there were other individuals there. You know, like certain uh, certain groups, anti-Muslim groups, and you know, white uh, right wingers type type uh, people and organization. And I remember I had a conversation with an individual who said, "How do I know that you're not going to commit a terrorist act?" You know, I mean, you know, I'm saying, you know, just because of what I believe. You know, you're saying, he's saying, well, maybe you're not committing it now, but how do I know in the future you won't commit? Now, how can you work against that? How can you, you can't live that way. You know, I'm, I'm a child of the, of the 50s and 60s and 70s, and I, I experienced that during the Jim Crow and, and, and um, segregation and, and discrimination. So now, I'm, as a Muslim, it's gotten revisited, just like you said, the COINTEL program existed then, now it has redirected its attention against the Muslims. And, you know, I, I think that's one interesting thing about this paradigm where, where there's this discussion of the Muslim community as if it's one thing, right. where it's really a, a number of different communities that have some links and, and, and some disagreements on, on important issues. Um, how, how, <clears throat> one of the, the goals of the FBI's COINTELPRO program was, was to divide the groups was to try to create uh, divisions between groups that otherwise thought the same thing. H have you felt that impact? I think Muslims are very wary of meeting other new Muslims. I don't want any new friends. I, I absolutely don't want any new friends. I don't want to meet people that I didn't know from before you know, 2001. Um, I think Muslim communities and in their masajids, the, if a person comes in asking about Islam, you're like, who is this guy? <laughs> you know where it's, 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 it's a missionary religion. They, people, Muslims want people to convert, but you're not wary of like, you know, are you, do you want me to speak into your flower? Well, you know, what is going on here, right? Um, I think it has really stigmatized the community um, and it's these various legal uh, law enforcement entities that are going in there and doing that. It's, it's, and it's every community in America, every Muslim community in America, from the most remote to the most populated has been touched that way. When we screened, first screened the film for, for Ali and Imam Siraj, and as well as some of the other people in the mosque, you, one of the women there, after seeing the film, she said, you know, just when, when we're, we I said, how do you get someone to talk about jihad? You don't, and he's like, you don't start off by saying that. You say, well, when did you convert? Or, you know, what, how long have you been a Muslim? And she said, I would never beforehand have considered just such an innocuous question having potentially sinister ramifications. And so now when someone asks me that question, that's going to be in my mind, you know, and just that far-reaching stain that, that is created by, the, by, by these tactics, by this program is, is terrifying. The Muslim, Muslims are not a small community. There's hundreds of thousands of Muslims in, in, in New York City. There's millions in, in, in America. Uh, this, this, this fear, this threat, uh, our children are growing up with different lessons than, than your children. You know, I'm teaching my children different things about, uh, you know, growing up in America and what to be wary of. And that, that's, you know, I, and I grew up here. I was, 
was raised here. I've been here, you know, since for 34 years. And, uh, you know, I had the New York City quintessential urban experience. And, you know, right now, uh, you know, from, from, from every facet, from the media, what are we talking about media? We're talking about shows like Homeland, 24. We're talking about the various uh, talk shows that, that get to cover us, you know, and get to dissect us without us have ever being represented in these shows. And they're really demoralizing, you know, our community. And it's interesting when you look at the contemporary materials being produced by the government on this concept of radicalization to violence, what they often talk about as an indicator is the expression of grievance. So being a victim of some government overreach and trying to express your concerns about that then makes you more suspect. So your victimization by the government makes you more suspect. David, this is now your... Well, just one point you made previously, like a few months ago at another Q&A, where you said, you know, Mike's experiences as an FBI agent is infiltrating white supremacist groups. And you said, I believe, that, you know, some of the other agents, when they're kind of going undercover, they're investigating potentially violent white supremacists, they were able to distinguish, you know, the difference between some guy who's just mouthing off and someone who actually seems capable of violence. And they're able to kind of make those, uh, you know, may be able to discern the difference between the two and the nuances there because they, they're like, that guy reminds me of my racist uncle who's just, you know, he's a schmuck, but he's not going to kill people. You know, and they're able to apply that level of nuance to, 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 to white people. But, you know, the F, you know, FBI agents are predominantly white. They're incapable of applying that same level of nuance to, to the Muslim community. And so everyone kind of becomes swallowed in this bubble of suspicion. You know, to, to use the analogy of Khalifa, can you imagine if the FBI started an investigation every time somebody posted something racist online? You know, they'd be doing a lot of investigations. But, but you're right, there's a different interpretation they make from it. Uh, David, this is now your second film tackling these issues. What, what do you hope to accomplish at this point? You, you did a terrific job making a film that I, I would have told you when you asked me in the beginning that it would be impossible to make. Uh, and, and it's so uh, incredible that we rely on filmmakers like you and Lyric uh, to bring us this information because this is supposed to be an open government that we have control over and, and it really requires this incredible feat to uh, get us information about what our government is doing. Well, you know, making my first film and watching in slow motion as this Muslim family was destroyed, you know, literally destroyed as a consequence of the accusation against her, you know, and that really motivated me to make a film that would capture what I thought was, was kind of a keystone here in these cases, you know. I think the use of domestic, these domestic informants and domestic terrorism cases is used to constantly reinforce in the public imagination the, the local and ever-present threat of terrorism. And if we can make a film that shows how fraudulent and, and you know, absurd these, these cases are, I thought, you know, this is, this is going to do it. You know, this is going to blow the system up and people are going to out, be outraged. And, you know, let me, let me call up my friend Mike German and ask him, like, how can we talk to the, you know, politicians on both sides of the aisle and change everything? And, he, you know, I, we met a few months ago and he said, sorry to burst your bubble, but the political willpower is not there. You know, no, you know, very, very few politicians are going to stick their neck out on this because the, the public, you know, they're, what they're exposed to is this media saturation. They're exposed to, you know, reporters like that Dimrod in Pittsburgh who is handed a press release by the FBI and reads from it practically verbatim 
without ever accessing any other sources of information because the families here are terrified, friends are terrified, no one is prepared to talk to the press on the day of the arrest, and yet, and, and as a consequence, the public is only exposed to those exclamation point headlines, you know, terrorist captured. You know, and the actual, you know, substance of these cases maybe will come out 12 months later if there's a trial. Most of, you know, the vast majority of the time it, it doesn't happen. So I think we have to kind of, I personally have to view this as, as a starting point and to kind of meet the, you know, meet people where they're at and understand that people have been brainwashed by really irresponsible, reckless journalism and try to kind of softly tread into that space and say, like, I recognize your, your reluctance to consider that, that our government is applying totally immoral and ineffective and, and evil policies. But th this is not an isolated case, and, and let's talk about it. And so we have a theatrical screening, uh, a theatrical release that's starting next week, actually, at the IFC Center on Wednesday. Uh, we're going to be running for a week, and then kind of slowly spreading out around the country. And we need all the support we can get in kind of spreading the word um, to, 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 to the country about getting people into the theaters and having a conversation. We're going to be on PBS also in the spring. Um, but it, it, it's, a, it's a gradual process. And I, so, I, so make I sure you tell your friends step. to come and see the theatrical screening so we can get more people aware of the situation. But I'd really like to thank the New America Foundation for, for providing this beautiful space and for, uh, for showing the film. And thanks to Ali and David. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.